I'm Bernie Crane. I'm John Crane. You're listening to the Jazz Session with Jason Crane, our dad. Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. This is episode 446 for March 2nd, 2015. On today's show, cellist Akua Dixon. You can become a member of the Jazz Session. $5 a month gets you MP3s and other exclusive content, and your $5 goes directly toward keeping the site online so you have access to the extensive archives. If you like what you hear and you would like to have access to it going forward, please become a member. You can do that at thejazzsession.com slash join. If you're listening to the show using iTunes, please rate and review the show. A good rating and a good review helps the show move up the iTunes rankings. Thank you very much. There's a radio version of the Jazz Session that airs Friday mornings from 9 to 11 a.m. Eastern Time. You can find out how to listen to it at thejazzsession.com. Just click on Radio Edition. It's music only. Music by many of the people that you hear on the Jazz Session, and other things too. I started doing stand-up recently and launched a second podcast at firstlaughs.com. The show is called First Laughs, and it is following my budding stand-up career? (laughs) I don't know. I'm not sure if it's budding or not. But anyway, it's following my stand-up career. There have been two episodes posted so far. I'm posting a new one each weekend. Check out my writing on my blog, jasoncrane.org. There's poetry there, there are essays there, and all other kinds of goofy stuff. That sentence was supposed to be all kinds of other goofy stuff, not all other kinds of goofy stuff. There's not every kind of goofy thing there. And if you need some PR work done, maybe a press release for your new album, or some liner notes, or a bio for your website, check out cranewrites.com, and you'll find a portfolio of the work I've done there for many other jazz artists. Cellist Akua Dixon has a brand new album out that highlights really the incredible breadth of music that her career has seen her involved in. I mean, dating back to the Apollo Theater and many, many jazz pursuits, classical pursuits, it's pretty impressive. The album is very impressive, and it starts this way. Thank you. 
My guest is cellist and composer and arranger Akua Dixon, who has just released her second CD as a leader. It is self-titled. It came out in January of 2015, and it is fabulous, and it is my pleasure to have Akua Dixon on the show. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me, Jason. I knew that uh, I was going to like this album when I flipped it over and looked at the composers on the back and saw that that one of them was uh, Israel Lopez, uh, better known as Kachow. And for years in the studio in New York where I recorded these interviews, I had had only two photographs on the wall. and One was Lenny Bruce and one was Kachow. Wow. And uh, he's just always been a, a hero of mine, a musical hero of mine, and he's someone with whom you've performed. So I thought maybe we could just start at that track and, and that would give you a chance to talk a little bit about uh, your experience with Kachow and then take us into the record. Um, I first met Kachow, you know, I grew up in New York City. So um, when I got out of high school, late 60s, there was a lot of activity going on as far as string writing was concerned in popular music and in Latin music. And I started doing sessions for Fania and wound up doing a session for uh, an artist, Kachow, who I'd never heard of before. And um, of course, falling in love with his music and such a warm, wonderful gentleman. Uh, I wound up doing many concerts with him over the years and um, getting to experience the magnificence of his composing and his playing. And when you say you were doing sessions for Fania, were you both performing and arranging, or at that point early in your career were you primarily performing? Just performing. I was not arranging. So when it came time to uh, – the song that's on here of his is Aguazar con mi combo, which is one of his certainly most famous compositions. Uh, Cachao, a Cuban bass player who essentially invented the mambo and – gave us just unbelievable amounts of incredible music. When you decided to, to put this tune on the album, can you talk a little bit about how you approach arranging a piece like this, especially since there is no percussionist on this record, which <laughs> you really don't even notice when you listen to this track, which I think is pretty I'm glad to hear you say that because that was the my uh, concept in that I grew up always playing in a string quartet. And even if you're playing Mozart, the rhythm has to be there, you know, uh, it's just a different rhythm. It's not syncopated, and it's not um, uh, Cuban in this particular instance, you know. So over the years of uh, figuring out how to write for string ensembles without a rhythm section so that they have the rhythm and the rhythm is tight and you don't miss it listening to it uh, was a bit of a challenge. But um, it's similar to the same as a classical composer does to make things lock together so that the rhythms tie up and are strong. It's just a lot more syncopation. Thank you. 
it necessary for you to surround yourself with people who were well versed in well it's not there's not just latin music on here but there's music of many different styles on this record and it seems like a lot of material for your quartet members to be well versed in so it, it feels like you've surrounded yourself with some pretty special people yes i have and you have to realize that today especially in a city like new york that people um are exposed to all kinds of music you know uh from many different lands and there's so many people here from all over wanting to share and especially learn how to, in the case of strings, how to improvise and how to play jazz. The the track right after Kachow's track is, I didn't actually look up to see the numbers, but it has to be one of the most recorded songs ever written, which is Henry Mancini's Moon River. And mm-hmm. as such, feels like a little bit of a landmine because, you know, it's everyone has done Moon River at some point. And I have to say this... This version of Moon River stopped me completely in my tracks. It First of all, it's incredibly beautiful, but it is just really creatively arranged. I didn't think there was really anything new to say about Moon River, and I was wrong. I wonder if you could talk about this arrangement. <laughs> okay. Um, I got hired to do the Made in New York Awards quite a number of years ago now, uh, maybe eight, almost ten years ago, and um, they wanted me to arrange songs that were from movies that had been filmed in New York City. I grew up going to performing arts high school, which had a large drama department. So, of course, I had watched a lot of Audrey Hepburn and all of these kind of movies. And um, Breakfast at Tiffany's and Moon River was one of my favorites. Uh, Playing string quartets uh, all my life, you wind up doing weddings and all kinds of jobs, and people have made different arrangements of a lot of these popular songs uh, to be played at weddings. And um, this one adapted and even goes over into that genre because the arrangement just came out so tight. And then it goes into an improvised section, which um, really works.
talk a little bit about improvising uh, as a string player, which I mean certainly is not a not a new thing, but you definitely came at the time that you were at the Performing Arts High School. Uh, as I understand it, there there was only a classical track to be on. And where did improvising kind of make its way into what you were interested in as a cellist? Well, I will say that um, even when I was in high school, I was composing and arranging, you know. And um, the essence of what I was writing had um, a jazzier feel, but I was writing in classical forms because that's what I was studying. Especially when I got into um, conservatory, right after I was writing cello sonatas and cello concertos that um, had uh, influences of the pentatonic scale or something else that showed my African-American heritage swinging and having a certain sense of rhythm, um, even though I was studying at a conservatory. And some of this, uh, this awareness of your musical heritage, that came from your family? Of course. Um, growing up again, uh, I went to an African-American church. I went to a Baptist church where I was learning at that time um, and coming up in the 60s, that's a heavy civil rights movement time. And um, parents were also teaching their children the songs that they had learned, I guess, during slavery and were passed on uh, from many, many years before in their heritage. Whereas nowadays there's so many new songs that a lot of the older songs that I learned, I rarely hear uh, done. So I grew up in that environment. And as a teenager, um, I would say that all my friends were listening to James Brown and The Temptations and The Supremes. So I listened to that music also. My dad liked big bands and the blues. So I listened to that also, but I was working and studying in school on as a cello major <laughs> and where did the 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 kind of smaller group jazz sensibility come from what do you remember how you first started listening to music like that kind of small group improvisation once i turned about 18 and started going out in new york to the clubs i started going to hear smaller bands like dexter gordon uh charles mingus rasan roland kirk uh george coleman had a group you know but I will say that the reason my writing is really a quartet is that that's what's most popular uh, in string writing is a string quartet. If you look at the literature and the repertoire um, of string music, it's mostly string quartet. It's the most popular uh, medium to write in and the most complete. You mentioned getting a chance to see uh, Charles Mingus in New York, and you uh, chose his Haitian fight song to uh, open this album. Can you talk a little bit about this piece and why it's the lead-off track on this record? Well, um, <laughs> I was approached by Sue Mingus in the late 90s, I think it was 1998, to do a concert of Mingus music for string quartet at... Um, Jazz at Lincoln Center, where they have the summer outdoor concerts. Right. Uh, the Haitian fight song was one of the songs that I arranged. Okay. And um, when it came time to do this CD, um, I pulled a lot of songs that I've written over the years, and I 
hadn't had a chance to record. Okay, I've been performing them live, and I felt that I wanted to record the Haitian fight song was such a special song, and I love the arrangement. It's written like a fugue. Um, the order of the songs is a very special moment because I wrote all of the arrangements. I taught all the music to the to the ensemble um, and did everything when you are an independent artist. And I was having a lot of trouble putting the songs in order. Okay. And I had them in alphabetical order and I was so frustrated because my deadline was coming that I was just going to leave it in alphabetical order. And the engineer said to me, Akua, you can't, you have to put them in order. So I called upon a dear friend of mine. Okay. Uh, Awilda Rivera. <laughs> and I asked her to put the songs in order. And this is the order that she came up with, with the Haitian fight song first. fight song features uh, someone in addition to the uh, the quartet and uh, that someone is uh, very closely related to you can you talk about who plays drums on that on that tune oh my son orion toure yes um it's interesting because um i've never used a drummer with my string quartet because i like playing my acoustic cello uh and when you usually play with a drummer you have to amplify or you really can't hear yourself well. He grew up having to um, balance himself playing with uh, my string ensemble when I went to rehearsals and things like that. I had to give him something to do, and um, it's worked out very well. I like the addition of the drums. As a matter of fact, we just did um, trumpets for the CD release party, and um, he played drums. So I expanded it. I gave him some other places on Moon River on the solo section or um, Poinciana uh, to play mallets, you know, and it sounded wonderful. Another of your children joins you on this album. Uh, we should probably mention her as well. Yes, my daughter Andromeda. She's a fantastic singer. 
And the arrangement of Lush Life is very difficult. And um, I wrote it in an almost atonal kind of setting in the introduction, and it goes into a swing feel on the end. Uh, but in addition to having already uh, a difficult melody line to sing, the way it's harmonized would give uh, a lot of singers uh, a challenge. And I feel like she really did a fantastic job. Yeah, I was going to say, you you certainly didn't throw her a softball because she's your daughter. You took a, a difficult song and made it even harder. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't on purpose. <laughs> yeah, sure it wasn't. <laughs> I used to visit all the very gay places Those come what may places Where one Talk about, uh, tell us the names of the members of the string quartet on this record who are, are just just fabulous. And, and really, you can tell that these are people that you play with regularly because of, uh, of how wonderful a group it sounds. Will you tell us who they are? Sure. Um, when you listen to the um, just the string quartet numbers, you will have Patricia Tomasini uh, on violin one. You'll have either Chela Yancey or Gwen Laster on second violin. Uh, Ina Paris on viola and myself on cello. That's the been the core of the string quartet. And what are the uh, in in a string quartet piece? Are there kind of traditional roles that each of those instruments will be given? Yes, and um, uh, I, as I said, I grew up playing chamber music and always playing in a string quartet. And generally speaking, the first violin has the melody. And the second violin will have an accompanying harmonic line. The viola will have some inner rhythmic concept and the cello functions as the bass. And you certainly found places on this album to do other things with that arrangement. Yes, I did. Yes, I did. And, you know, it's been um, over the uh, since the 70s having a string quartet to write for. My original string quartet was my sister Gail on first violin and John Blake on second violin, Maxine Roach was playing viola and myself on cello. Uh, Gail was a stronger classical player and John was a stronger soloist. And I generally speaking still have that combination of violinists 
working with me, you know. John Blake uh, appears on this album. Uh, it's happily that he's on this album, but sadly in one of his, his final recordings. Will you say more about John Blake? Sure. I met John in the early 70s, and, oh, such a fantastic violinist. Nobody uh, has a signature like he does and can get through changes and improvise uh, like that. You know, he's like a horn player and such a wonderful man. Uh, we played together in so many different ensembles over the years. This was an opportunity with this CD to bring both him and Regina Carter back because both of them worked in my string quartet uh, at some point over the 30, 40 years that I've had a string quartet. So I'm glad that he was able to come back and play a little bit with me. And you just mentioned Regina Carter there, who also uh, plays violin on this recording. And I think we've we've covered everyone except uh, one person, uh, the bassist on this album. That's right. That's Kenny Davis. <laughs> I um, have to say that Kenny is really just fantastic. And um, to fit in with a string quartet that plays all the time together, and um, also a lot of my parts are arco, um, so uh, which bass players love to be able to use but don't get the opportunity to use too often in jazz music. Um, arco means to play with a bow, right? Playing with the bow, yes. Okay. Yeah. So when you when you add a bass uh, into the mix, what does that what does that do to what you're playing on the cello since you're often holding down that lowest that lowest voice? How do you make those two instruments work together where they don't normally appear? Right. I don't have to play the bass line anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have to, but where I hear it, I do play it. There's in my case, um, uh, if there are different times on the CD that you will hear that I'm not playing a pizzicato bass line. I play my bass lines a lot of times arco with my bow, and that's how I hear it. really and i although i've i've listened to a decent amount of classical string quartet music i I certainly am no expert and i am very impressed 
throughout this record at how much harmony it is possible to achieve with four players. I mean, there are times when it's difficult to believe that it is, in fact, only four players, but it is. It's really incredible what you can do with, I don't want to say just, but with just a string quartet. Yes. Well, this is why a string quartet is so popular, you know, and why the repertoire for the for that combination of string instruments has really thrived. Have you written things as an arranger that that fall outside what one of the members of the quartet would normally do? Do you do you find yourself in your arrangements kind of giving them pieces that or or parts to play that are beyond what they'd normally be called on to play? Well, um, I would say that especially the core players, Patricia and um, Ina uh, and myself, in comparison to the jobs that they've had to do in New York City playing, they haven't had to do as intense jazz music as with me. So that has been, and improvised, that has been way out of their range of what they uh, normally do within a string quartet, that kind of punctuation and uh, improvising with chord changes, you know. You mentioned in passing earlier that when you... uh after you you finished your schooling, that one of the the first things you did was play with people like James Brown. You were in the pit band at the Apollo, uh, which I'd love to hear about, and and what that did for you as a player. They had a big band uh, at the Apollo, which was the Apollo Theater, I guess, normal band that was there. And around that time, they were getting so many strings in that um, I was able to work quite a bit there with a lot of the bands that came through that hired a string section. If you remember a lot of those charts from back then, uh, It's a Man's World, um, uh, Temptations, Papa's a Rolling Stone, you know, uh, Gladys Knight and the Pips, you know, uh, the Stylistics, all Dionne Warwick, all these bands use strings, Barry White, Marvin Gaye, you know. So um, I started working there and consequently, when some of these artists went on to work at the Copacabana or Westbury Music Fair, um, I got to go. And um, I guess I did a good job because they started hiring me for other artists other than the artists I was originally hired for. And this led to also being able to do Broadway for many years after that. And uh, correct me again if I'm wrong here, but I imagine at that time, um, as uh, both a woman and a, an African American woman, that symphony gigs were difficult to come by, kind of few and far between. Is that was that the case? Well, I would say yes. Um, none of the major symphony orchestras really have too many African Americans. Philadelphia Symphony has, I think, three or four, and um, that they've had for many years. But most orchestras have one, maybe two, but most of them have one. And you're uh, using the present tense, you mean in 2015? Yes. Today. Well, that, <laughs> I mean, you know, for, forgive this middle class white guy, but that, that doesn't seem right. No, it doesn't seem right. But take a look. <laughs> yeah. I'm serious. I've seen concerts with the New York Philharmonic even recently, you know. And I've seen one African-American, he's a clarinet player, they make sure they show him quite often. And that's it. Man, oh man. Yes. 
Wow. Um, yeah, I mean, I was asking, I was asking that question about the mid '70s, but uh, apparently the the early 21st century is no better. Well, no, not in that, not as far as symphonic work is concerned. I would say that even on Broadway uh, and those kind of jobs, you'll see a few more, but um, even there, those are good jobs and people want to hold on to them, so uh, it's very hard to get in. Okay. Will you say something about the Symphony of the New World? Sure. Um, during the Civil Rights era, it was an, a predominantly African-American orchestra that was formed by several of the top freelancing uh, musicians, African-American musicians, and Ben Steinberg here in New York. And um, I had the wonderful opportunity to play uh, with them and be a cellist in the orchestra. And um, they would also, in addition to their classical program, they would get different composers. Uh, uh, James DePriest is one that they brought in. Uh, Leonard Dupour, a different top African-American classical conductors to conduct as guest conductors. They would also ask different um, composers to write something for the orchestra. And one of the people they chose was Duke Ellington, who I got to meet and play a piece of his. And um, that was a turning point for me in my life, you know. Uh, I had always admired and heard a lot of his music, but getting to meet him and to play something uh, written by him let me know that I needed to even dig deeper into learning my own music. And so what did you do next once you had that, that epiphany, so to speak? What, what happened then? Well, I decided to start learning repertoire. You know, If you had told me to um, play a Mozart string quartet, I could immediately start to play it. You know, uh, But if you had asked me to play in a sentimental mood, I would have not been able to play it. Okay, So I started to learn repertoire. In uh, in reading about you, I came across a, a group that I had never heard of, and part of that is you know just my own lack of education about the string scene. 
in New York in the 70s, but a band called String Reunion, which seems like it kind of fits in about where we're at in the story here, uh, okay. kind of post the Ellington experience. Can you say something about String Reunion? Sure. Around the time that we were playing in the Symphony of the New World, there were a lot of African-American string players that had gone to either performing arts, music and art, uh, Manhattan School of Music, uh, Juilliard, that were freelancing in the New York area. And um, one thing that happens when you do that kind of freelancing, you have a lot of time to kill, you know, uh, in between when the rehearsal ends and the show begins or uh, in, if you have two show days, you have a couple of hours in between. So we used to get together and play chamber music. And when I say we, um, I would say that it was a core of us that were always working seems together on a lot of uh, shows at that time. That included Noel Pointer, my sister Gail, John Blake. Um, I could mention a bunch of people's names, but probably most of them you wouldn't know. They're working even in classical music, you know. Sure. Uh, uh, teaching at different colleges, African-American plays that I grew up with as string players, you know. Um, so they, we formed together an ensemble called the String Reunion. And um, we solicited work for ourselves, both playing classically and playing jazz or whatever people needed, and did a lot of re record dates um, and a lot of concerts during that time as an ensemble. I became the director of new music and wrote most of the arrangements or solicited arrangements from top jazz composers um, to write for the band, for the orchestra. And um, they also played compositions, uh, not only by, only for string orchestra, but not only by European composers, but by uh, African-American, or there was one piece an African Suite by Fela Swande, who's a Nigerian composer that we performed. And uh, around this same time, you formed your first quartet, the one that you mentioned earlier with your sister Gail Dixon and with Maxine Roach and, and John Blake, right? That's right. That was Quartet Indigo. And had you... Uh, by the time you formed Quartet Indigo, were you forming it in response to, okay, now I have all these ideas for what I'd like to do with the string quartet in a more improvised context? Was that kind of, was that the inspiration for its creation? Well, we were working already. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, it's interesting because um, I came out of the box working. <laughs> <laughs> and um, whether it was doing Messiah gigs or whatever as a kid, and having other little jobs where I wrote smaller arrangements for Christmas concerts or Easter time, um, uh, I had been I, it just never entered my mind to never not have a string quartet, you know. Yeah, I guess, which you know, in some ways seems uh, like counter to what existed at the time, and that's probably why it's why you've managed to stay as successful as you have for all these years. It seems like you're, you're charting a path that in many ways you were blazing at the time. Right. I, I, when, um, as a young girl, I grew up in the Bronx, okay? And my elementary school had a wonderful music program. I had a half a day of music, half a day of academics, fourth, fifth, and sixth grade. In junior high school, there was a borough-wide orchestra, a borough, a citywide string orchestra, 
There were so many uh, areas to play. And our parents let us get together in our free time and play string quartets uh, as friends at a different one's house every weekend or anytime we had a half a day of school. So my activities were always with other string players and always playing chamber music. Wow. I never that's did a, anything else. <laughs> yeah, that's a fairly single-minded devotion to to this career, which is, I'm sure, is what it requires. I mean, it, it seems like if you're going to do it at the level you do it at, it's not surprising that you have this, you know, almost kind of monastic view about about practicing and composing constantly. Yeah. Well, um, I would say that that's what happened for me within my life. The opportunity arose to um, immerse myself like this from a young age and always do it. So um, I did it. (laughs) (laughs) It was fun. And um, I started working and getting paid uh, for doing it at a young age. So why wouldn't I do it? (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Music Uh, was my nine to five. All my life. Did... Which, I mean, even no no matter where you grew up, and in that day and age or in this one, that still always seems to me a little surprising. There are there are kind of so few models of successful musicians that most people encounter in their lives. There's only, like, superstar or or nothing, it seems like. You know, for the most part, what we hear on the radio, what we see on TV. And so I'm always impressed when people from a very young age think, oh, yeah, this is definitely something – I can do. Is there anything, any person or any experience you had to whom you can credit that idea that that being a musician was actually something someone could do? Um, No, nobody in particular. Um, Like I said, I I got my union card in 1970 um, and I was working. So um, I never thought that it was impossible. My elder sister, Gail, was two years ahead of me and she was already working um, two years beyond where I was starting. So I saw that it was possible, you know, and to um, that even though maybe I wouldn't be able to play in the symphony, uh, in uh, a major symphony, there were smaller chamber ensembles that did hire African-Americans and you could play. Um, I could have a good life and I could make money. So I did. Uh, I want to come back up to the present, but I just want to ask you one more question about your past. Uh, I'm I'm in my 40s, and I started listening to to jazz in the 80s for the most part. And one of the f- the first uh, Max Roach bands I ever remember hearing was the Double Quartet, which you were uh, a founding member of. And I just wondered if you could say a few words about that ensemble. That was an amazing experience. Like I said, growing up in New York, I was able to um, study classically work with Latin bands, work with jazz bands, um, do Broadway. So I got exposed to so many different styles of um, music. And um, in 81, when I met Max Roach and he wanted to form the Max Roach Double Quartet, um, I had had some grounding playing with Archie Shepp and... Uh, other jazz musicians, so had my sister and Maxine, and John Blake was in the quartet at that time. We played with a lot of people together as an ensemble. So for him to um, take us as an ensemble, he wanted all women, so instead of John, uh, Diane Monroe joined the band. Um, 
we got busy and it was really a phenomenal experience. Max wanted us to be able to play uh, bebop specifically and the phrasing that he was playing on his drums on our instruments with a bow and um, to be that tight and at the speed that he wanted to play at. So we rehearsed every day um, pretty much for from September to like April before that first concert with him uh, learning the phrasing of the music that he wanted. And did you contribute uh, arrangements to that band? Not to the double quartet, but the quartet, the first performances of the Uptown String Quartet, they played Charts of Mine. As a matter of fact, Freedom was one of the charts that they played. Which appears on, on the new record. Right. I never had a chance to record it. But it was written, that arrangement was written back in the 70s. Wow. Wow. Well, oh man, I'm, I'm so glad we're getting to hear it. Uh, and that, that brings us uh, nicely up to the new album. You've recently done some CD release parties, as you mentioned. And looking ahead uh, to 2015, as, as the year continues, uh, what can we expect? What, what things are on the calendar for you? Well, I'm writing <laughs> more things, uh, both for the string ensemble. Um, I've come up with some new charts that I really like that we're working on. And um, the CD that I did just before this one is myself with a rhythm section. Um, and I've been working on some new stuff for that band. So it's, It seems like there's, uh, there's never any resting on your laurels where you're concerned. Well... I would get bored, and uh, there's a there's a slight difference between a groove and a rut. <laughs> <laughs> and when you do things too much, too many times the same way, it for me it becomes a rut, you know. Well, I think that's an important lesson. Uh, my guest is Akua Dixon. Her new album uh, is simply titled with her name, and uh, it's really wonderful. I highly recommend everyone check it out. Uh, Akua Dixon, it's been a, a real pleasure talking to you, and I thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Jason. That is music from cellist Akua Dixon, her brand new album, self-titled. Definitely worth you checking out. Thanks so much to her for being on the show. Thanks also to the Respect Sextet for the theme music for this program. Thanks to Dave Rabel for the logo. Check the show out at facebook.com slash thejazzsession. You can also, of course, find the extensive archives at thejazzsession.com. 
Find my stand-up at firstlaughs.com. Find me on Twitter at Jason D. Crane. And if you need some PR work done, check out cranerights.com. That's it for this week. Come back next time for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session. Thank you for listening, everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye.